Hi, this is E. Michael Jones. This is a Culture Wars podcast. And today we're talking with Patrick Coffin, Catholic extraordinaire. Patrick Coffin is the organizer of Truth Over Fear, Anti-Lockdown Summit Series, which you can catch at www.restoretheculture.com. And this got him a permanent ban from YouTube. He is also the host of the Patrick Coffin Show podcast, now downloaded in over 110 countries, and is the co-founder of CoffinNation.com, an international community of Catholic culture rebuilding. Welcome, Patrick. Dr. E. Michael Jones, uh, it's an honor to be on your show for once. Yes, it's an honor to have you on the other side of the knife here, uh, so to speak. Uh, before we get into what we're really going to talk about, uh, are you, are the champagne corks popping at uh, Restore the Culture? Uh, are you do, do you feel that uh, the COVID is now coming to an end, the COVID lockdown, the COVID, bi COVID bio warfare against the world's population? Uh, I got out of the the uh, habit of polishing off my uh, crystal ball. I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that when Boris Johnson recently announced that, uh, whoopsie, uh, we're now going to trust the British people, the mandates are off, you don't have to wear a mask, etc. That just seemed like uh, a strategic ass covering tactical maneuver so that the people that he reports to can initiate the next uh, stage of agenda uh, 201, sometimes called Agenda 2030, that's been in, in the works since at least 1992, signed on by 178 countries. COVID-19 has never just been about uh, SARS-CoV-2, as you know, Mike. It's about acquiring your data so you can be tracked and controlled. So I, I think this uh, loosening of the reins will be followed by an extra tightening of the reins. That's what they do. They, they soften the ground so that you feel guilty about basic freedoms so that when uh, when abnormal pressures are relieved, people breathe, you know, they can breathe easy, but they're still nervous about the, what the next thing will be, the next uh, bit of what I call fear porn. Uh, just look at all the Time Magazine covers in the last two generations. Uh, every month or so, there's a new fear porn product to make us terrified and therefore make us more uh, manageable. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. But on the other hand, I also think that this was a political operation from the beginning, and that in many ways, the Boris Johnsons of the world were the fall guys here. Uh, they were uh, basically Fauci uh, said, I'll hold your coat and you go out and beat up the people of the uh, England or the United States of America. So Fauci gave the orders and the politicians took the heat. They took it on the chin. Uh, Joe Biden uh, still hasn't figured this out. Uh, but I think that's what was happening. And I think Boris is faced with uh, calls for him to resign because he's having parties, lockdown parties, and he's in big trouble. And so he just calls the whole thing off. He's basically saying it was political from the beginning. I am taking the political power out of the hands of the of big pharma uh, whores, and I'm, I'm uh, reasserting my power as the elected official here. That's the way yeah. I see it. Yeah, I think the cat was out of the bag with uh, photographic and, and video evidence. He couldn't deny that he was at these uh, these uh, Chianti and wine um, coffee clutch meetings that the little people are not permitted to have. And he got caught with his pants down. So he he tripled down, not in apologizing, which he did only, but um, pulling the plug in the whole thing. And yeah. uh, I, I think it's significant that that happened in England since Neil Ferguson, the uh, 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 Imperial College London uh, immunologist, whatever his uh, official uh, hat is, he's the one who was off by, I think, a 10x number. He was the, the biggest doom and gloom uh, early model predictor uh, before he was found uh, sleeping with a woman, not his wife. And that whole right. thing collapsed. Right, right. And that's uh, that was uh, uh, exposing the technocrat. The technocrat got exposed. Uh, they are always better behind the scenes, but uh, got exposed. And I think uh, I think the tide's turning. This is, comes on the heels of the Supreme Court uh, overturning Biden's mandate. Within days, uh, the Supreme Court in India did the same thing. Uh, no mandatory, uh, uh, no ma vax mandates. You have <coughs> uh, uh, pockets where it seems to be going the opposite direction, like uh, Italy, which seems determined to cripple its entire population, not just leave 10% unvaccinated. Germany, uh, but <clears throat> Germany is 
an understandable phenomenon. And at that point, at this point, I would like to segue into the real topic here, which is synodality. And in particular, uh, the ethnic roots of synodality. Uh, so synodality. Uh, as of now, we are having uh, meetings, sessions in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, where we are supposed to go and go to the parish, local parish, and we are supposed to discuss a series of questions here. Uh, this is classic, classic uh, manipulation of crowd uh, psychology. Uh, we're, all, we're supposed to break into little groups. I don't know whether you've been into these meetings before where we all break into little groups. I, I've been to these things and I don't go to a lot of meetings, uh, but mm -hmm. I've been there. Uh, we're going to break into a little group. And you're, so you sit at this table and there's invariably somebody at the table who's going to summarize what we said. And that person is in control of the information. No matter what gets said, this person is going to summarize it. And that gets passed up the food chain to another person who's going to summarize and so on and so forth. Now, usually this takes place in one room. And so you have a little bit of overview. But now we have like it's like the global pandemic. We have the global uh, uh, break into small group session. And now it's the entire Catholic Church. OK. The yep. entire Catholic Church. So we're we are we're we are supposed to believe we the faithful that someone is going to be able to synthesize the opinions of 1.2 billion people. Now, what great mind is there? I, I I'm I, I I can only think of one mind at this point, and that is the mind of God. I can't think of any other mind that is capable of doing something like this. And I'm going to be frank with you, Patrick. I know this uh, may come as a shock to you, but I think the answer is already in. I think the fix is in. I think this is a complete charade. I think what we're seeing here, as soon as you see uh, as the first thing that we are to discuss the word inclusivity, I think the answer is already there. And and the the poor slobs who are actually Catholics in the pews who go to these meetings, it doesn't matter at all what they say, because yeah. it, it is physically impossible. It is intellectually, theoretically impossible, it seems to me, for some type of uh, idea to actually percolate to the top of all of these, uh, jump through all of these hoops. And so I'm going to, I'm going to make, uh, let me, let me just let me know what you think about this, but uh, I am, I'm going to say, that uh, the answer is already there. And I'm, I'm going to tell you who's, who's got the answer. It's a Jesuit. Because the Jesuits are running the church right now. Uh, and some Jesuit already knows what the faithful are going to say. And I'm going to give you two examples of why I feel that way. Okay, first of all, traditionis custodes. Mm -hmm. Caused incredible division in the church. Whose idea was that? Was that... Uh, uh, Pope Francis's idea? Well, it may be, maybe the great minds run in the same circles, but the simple fact of the matter is that the Jesuit Thomas Rees wrote an article stating exactly this about five months before Traditionis Custodis came out. Another example, Pope Francis just wrote a letter uh, congratulating uh, Sister Janine Gramick. Now, you probably know who Sister Janine Gramick is, because mm -hmm. you're you're informed. This is a lady. I know I know who she is. She and my cousin were best friends. Okay. Uh, Sister Jeanine Gramick went on to follow uh, found uh New Ways Ministry, uh, which has spent the last 50 years undermining the church's teaching on homosexuality. Now that's scandalous enough, but uh can you actually do you actually think that uh, uh Pope Francis spending most of his life uh, in Argentina knew who Sister Janine Gramick was. Now, I've asked people at Notre Dame, uh, and they don't know who she is. And that's yeah. odd because she speaks regularly <clears throat> at Notre Dame. I was mm -hmm. at one of her talks. And at that talk, I, 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 she gave her talk, and I said, I was in the audience, I said, uh, uh, for a question, uh, do you accept the church's teaching on homosexuality? Uh, 
And she looked at me and said, I'm not going to answer that question. Now, if you ask my humble opinion, I don't think Bergoglio knew her from Adam until someone put a letter on his desk. And I'm going to make a stab. I would bet that man was James Martin because that is his apostle in life. So I'm saying here that it looks as if this is the, my take on this whole thing. Uh, the fix is in, and it's either going to be James Martin or uh, Father Spadaro or uh, Thomas Reese who's going to tell us what the church feel. Now, let, what, what are your thoughts? Well, you stole a lot of arrows out of my quiver, Dr. Jones. Uh, let me start with the, the first section of what you just laid out uh, quite clearly. And what you're looking at in these synodal listening sessions is a technique known as the Delphi technique. And it was, it was invented by Saul Alinsky. Alinsky was using this from the 1950s and 1960s to great effect in Italy through his friendship with the former Archbishop of Milan, uh, Archbishop, I think I have the diocese right, he's from Brescia, but I think he was the Milan Archbishop, named Giovanni Montini, who later became Paul VI. They had a long writing correspondence. Uh, Archbishop Montini then became a cardinal and continued to keep in touch with Sololinsky. And so this Delphi technique is uh, exactly as you said it. The conclusions are already drawn, the decisions are already made, but they hold these listening sessions in the meantime to give people on the ground the pew warmers a sense, hey, I, I contributed. Uh, someone thanked me for my opinion. And they have plants at each table that encourage um, providing input and feedback. But it's all window dressing. The decisions are made, the, the ink is dry on what they want to do. And I think I've cracked the code on what synodality is, Mike. I was reading through the synod.va <clears throat> information. There's a thing called a vatimacum, which is a fancy word for guidebook or manual. They never define what synodality is, although they ask the question and you, you, you read through these, these uh, word salad paragraphs and you, you don't find a clear answer. I think synodality is a synonym for Protestantism. It's the decentralization of the church and the implicit destruction of the hierarchy that Jesus Christ gave to his church, which is uh, quite <coughs> clearly described in Lumen Gentium in the documents of the Second Vatican Council. So I think synodality is code for, for a Protestantization of the church. Um, I, I agree that chances are low that uh, Pope Francis knew who Sister Gramic was. She's a longtime darling of the National Catholic Distorter crowd. She and Father Bob Nugent started this uh, dissident group called New Way. She was also pro-abortion, by the way. That's not well known, but she's a, a card-carrying pro-choicer. And it reminded me of, although it was written in handwriting, allegedly Francis's uh, script, it reminded me of his 2015 address to the U.S. Congress. You remember that? Where he invoked Martin Luther King Jr., Thomas Merton, and Dorothy Day. Now, I think chances are equally low that he knew who uh, Dorothy Day was. Uh, her cause was sort of semi-open under Cardinal O'Connor, and it's just kind of, uh, it's been languishing, the founder of the of the Catholic worker. But all of the buzzwords, all of the kind of um, iconic, uh, popular heroes of faith traditions were dropped as a references in, in Pope Francis's uh, uh, Congress address. And I, I think it was uh, locally written as well, maybe by someone like Bishop Barron. That's what does what more. does it reflect? Does I think it reflects the uh, the editorial mindset of America Magazine when you mention those those people. Uh, why didn't Why didn't he mention Juan Perón? Uh, Juan Perón was a very big influence on his life. This is the only influence that I can see on his life that had any lasting value, as far as I can tell, uh, and uh, it doesn't lead anywhere. This is already so. So the so let, let me let me propose a thought experiment to you. Mm -hmm. which is I proposed, I, I met with the uh, parish priest after I came out of mass on Sunday and he encouraged all of us to come to the thing. And I said, what I think uh, would be a success if I went to this meeting and I said, uh, suppress the Jesuits, mm -hmm. suppress the Jesuits. I think that this is the biggest issue facing the church right now. It is the Jesuit control of the church. And by Jesuit, what do I mean uh, other than the obvious? Uh, what I mean is that the Jesuits are now the handmaidens of the oligarchs. 
the Jesuits get money from George Soros. He gives millions of dollars to uh, Jesuit NGOs. Uh, but you, you don't need that exact. All you have to do is look at their agenda. Their agenda is identical with the oligarchic agenda. This has been this way with the Jesuits for uh, for a long time. So suppose we did. Suppose every. Suppose everyone said suppress the Jesuits. What do you think would happen? I think you'd be thanked profusely for your input and your candor, and you would never be invited back. Right. Because you can't, a Jesuit can't suppress the Jesuits. No, no. <laughs> so it would, how would you possibly, how could you possibly make yourself heard? First of all, because of the dynamics of like a billion people and you're going to be heard, your voice is going to, no, that's not going to happen. But secondly, it, the content, the content has to fit in with the agenda that's already been established. And it's clear. So it's hopeless. I don't see any way that this could possibly produce anything other than what we've just discussed yeah it makes people feel good about themselves and they they uh it's like one giant uh parish council meeting where everyone yes. provides their precious opinions uh there's no mention in this vatimacum from synod.va about doctrine about the hierarchical church about uh the roman pontiff about the deposit of faith nothing it's inclusivity it's uh walking together it's uh uh, various uses of the word synod as adjectives. It's um, it's like verbal MSG. You you go through it and you're still kind of hungry. What 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 was that? I'm a fairly close reader. I don't understand any of this. Right, right. So I uh, I sent you the article. It's going to be in the uh, February issue of Culture Wars. Uh, the the yes. ethnic the ethnic roots of synodality. And I think in order to understand it, we have to understand. There's one man who is the key to understanding this, and that's Joseph Ratzinger. Mm -hmm. um, did he do something bad recently? He's now, uh, suddenly now, you have to ask yourself why he's in the target of the, the people who want to torpedo the church. He allegedly uh, didn't act strongly enough on four cases that were reported when he was the Archbishop of Munich. Uh, these things have been uh, at least in a file somewhere all this time, but now eight years after his alleged abdication, it's all coming up now. It's almost like they want to pile on to this man to further humiliate, isolate, and kind of silence him. Uh, think about uh, Catholics listening to us right now, Mike, will know that his uh, Benedict XVI's probably the most substantial legacy is Samoan Pontificum, where he rehabilitated uh, access to the traditional Latin Mass. That was fully torpedoed to in, into the ground. Um, I think I just mixed the, mixed the metaphor there. But it was um, certainly uh, brought very low with Traditionis Custodis and the follow-up, the adubia. Um, and I think this effort to further shame Benedict is is uh, indicative of the, the sea change that the Jesuits and their fellow travelers want to exert in the church. And so if you can humiliate Benedict XVI as a 95 year old decades after it happened, that's fine. Yeah, this is close to like digging up a corpse and abusing this corpse, you know, like what the communists did in uh, Spain during the civil war there. Why, the question is why now? And you're, so you're saying it's traditionis custodes. I think it's another or, layer of, of, of dirt on the grave of his legacy. Yeah, the timing or, of it. Or uh, what it really is an attack on Samorum Pontificorum. Yes. Now, this is tough for me, Mike. I met Benedict XVI. I know you have as well. I, I, won't, I won't give the backstory, but I got a chance to spend more than a few moments with him. I introduced him to my father um, in Rome in 2012. And uh, I've been a, a reader of Joseph Ratzinger since I discovered Introduction to Christianity. And it wasn't until I read an interview with Pete Shavald, his um, collaborator slash interviewer, and he said something that really caught my attention. I think it was reported in LifeSite News that Seewald said the, the idea that, that Ratzinger was a kind of progressive who got religion and then became more traditionalist after Second Vatican Council, he said, that's, that's a myth. That is not true. He's never really stopped being a, a progressive thinker. He was opposed, as you point out in your um, upcoming article, opposed to the anti-modernist oath. Uh, if you read his musings in the 1960s, they're pretty indistinguishable from what you would find in America today, unless I'm misreading him. So he certainly, um, by becoming Cardinal Frings's um, 
uh, Peritus at the Second Vatican Council exerted uh, a, a out of proportion influence for one non cardinal priest there. I think that's I think you're dead right about that. But you, I think you were making a, uh, an additional point about Ratzinger. Yeah. Well, what's uh, uh, what do you think of Samorum Pontificorum? This is this is causing yeah. was it a cause of division? Did did or I, I mean I've I've already I've already gotten to a lot of trouble uh, with my view on Samorum Pontificorum. Uh, this is the guy uh, who said in theological highlights of Vatican II, his book I think it's 1968. Uh, the wall of Latinity had to be breached. If you read that memoir, uh, basically about the Second Vatican Council, you can't come to any other conclusion other than that Rossier <clears throat> hated, hated the Latin Mass. I think that's the thing he did change his mind about. I think um, issuing Samorum Pontificum is proof of that, that he didn't, he didn't think that uh, holing up Latin into a small ghetto was a good idea for the universal church. Um, I don't know why he lifted the excommunications. Uh, I think the year after that, maybe the year before that, either 2009 or 2010, he lifted the excommunications of of the four living bishops that were ordained by um, Archbishop Lefebvre. I don't remember anyone clamoring for that, but he did, and he he explained that while the excommunications are canonically lifted, they the society does not exercise legitimate ministry in the church. They're right. not in full communion. Right. Right. A lot of people deny that too. That insp that inspire me. You like you. I have been a follower of Ratzinger for my uh, adult life. I met with him uh, uh, twice. Uh, once in Rome, we had a conversation uh, in German. He thanked me. He said I spoke German very well. And I said, "Well, you do too." Um, <laughs> it turns out we knew the same nun uh, mm -hmm. in the place where I was teaching, and so on and so forth. Uh, but what I'm trying, what I'm starting to realize is that it's not just about Ratzinger. It's about the whole world that Ratzinger lived through, the whole, the cataclysm that Ratzinger lived through. And mm -hmm. obviously everybody knows that he was involved, uh, dragged into World War II as a teenager uh, in some type of suicidal flak uh, uh, brigade that would have gotten him killed if they had ever seen any type of action. Uh, but I'm starting to realize, uh, and this is after, I mean, living in Germany, knowing Ratzinger, reading him for years, uh, the, the whole thing uh, that we just don't understand. No one really understands that era uh, because it's been completely suppressed and it's been suppressed by a narrative that was created after the fact to justify American war crimes. That's and what the, I'm saying. And the the crushing of Germany's national spirit after World War II. Absolutely. To, so we're to, talking to blame, about to blame every man, woman and child for the Holocaust. Right. For and we're talking about a, a, a concerted attempt at genocide. And no one talks about this because what we're talking about here is the Morgenthau plan. Uh, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Jewish uh, secretary of state. Uh, I'm sorry, secretary of the Treasury. Uh, consumed with uh, Jewish vengeance, the desire for Jewish vengeance against the German people who felt that the German people were guilty, not the Nazis, but that the German people and that the German people should be punished and that the German people should be exterminated. Now, this is not an exaggeration. There were people who, uh, Mr. Neiser was writing books like uh, Germany must be uh, destroyed, Germania Delenda Est, uh, uh, and Morgenthau was involved in starving the German people to death. That's the Morgenthau plan. Okay, nobody's talking about this. One person who understood what was going on at the time was Cardinal Frings of Cologne, mm -hmm. who stood up courageously to the Americans and uh, basically told the Germans, if they have food in their warehouses, you can go in and take that food and it's not theft. And the same goes with coal because you're freezing to death and they have no right to deprive you of this type of thing. And as a result of him standing up and other factors, uh, the Morgenthau plan got scrapped. Okay, uh, the, the adults in the room realized, wait a minute, we're gonna hand uh, Germany to the Soviets if we keep going this way. And so they came up with the Marshall Plan. But my point here is uh, that the Marshall Plan was ruthless in its own way. So 
uh, Joseph Ratzinger is 20 years old in 1947. 1947, 46, 47, the winner is called Das Hungerjahr in German. German history, official German history, the type of thing you get in textbooks in the schools, Das Hungerjahr, uh, which is the Morgenthau plan. And uh, so uh, did he know that he was hungry in 1920? You know when you're hungry, whether you're hungry when you're two months old, okay? And he's 20 years old. Now, there was, there was a, little, a little mediating factor. He was in the seminary. And the seminary was in rural Bavaria, and rural Bavaria had its own source of food, okay? So it wasn't as bad as if you were in Munich, because it was really bad there. So he grew up with this, and then mm -hmm. he's he comes. Then we have the uh, the Marshall Plan. Well, the Marshall Plan was just a more sophisticated version of destroying Germany, and by that I mean social engineering. And by social engineering, I mean what I talked about, libido dominandi, uh, which is basically using sex to control the people. Uh, Germany was flooded with pornography, flooded with pornography. Uh, under the Marshall Plan, as soon as they had new currency, it was flooded with pornography. And there was a, uh, uh, they were going toe to toe, uh, the church against the American occupying powers, because the occupying powers were complicit in this. There was a Jew from New York City by the name of David Mordecai Levy. Any German who wanted to get something published or performed had to get a license from this man. And to get that license, you had to lie down on his couch and tell him what bad people the Germans were and talk about the guilt and internalize that narrative. Now, this is the world that Ratzinger is formed in. And I'm saying we simply did not, we don't understand the magnitude of what's going on here, the magnitude of the, uh, of the social engineering that was imposed on the German people at that point. So I'm saying it comes up to, go ahead, go ahead, uh, go ahead I've talked enough. I no, I just wanted to know if it's known what uh, young father uh, Ratzinger's attitude was toward the movement uh, typified or led by Cardinal Frings against, what's the German phrase? Schmutz und Schmunt, the Schmutz, smut and filth? Schmutz und Schund. So, so you can read, read Seewald, uh, you can read his autobiography, and you won't find out because he ain't, he ain't going to tell you. I've been through this before. I dealt with uh, Werner Heisenberg. Now, this is the man who was at the top of the heap when Ratzinger was a young man. This was the man who symbolized the new Germany. Uh, and I said, uh, he simply ignored it. This was this is, in This is infra. the Nobel Prize winner in right, physics? Right, yeah. in physics. He was the, the kind of the leading light, the man who took over after World War II as the epitome of the new Germany. And his daughter uh, wrote to me. And just chewed me out because why, do you, why should my father be interested in schmutz und schund? Well, that's the typical attitude. I'm saying that's exactly what I'm trying to say here. And so I think where you find this out is when you go to theological highlights. Don't go to the biography because don't go to Zaval because he'll never tell you this type of stuff. It's always the sanitized version here, including uh, the, the, uh, uh, when Zaval brings up Georg Ratzinger. His great uncle. Yeah, not the brother, his great uncle. No, right? the great uncle who was famous. And what about your great uncle? Oh, he was a character. And that next question. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Stop. Stop. Your great uncle is now known as an anti-Semite. Uh, your holiness, is your great uncle an anti-Semite? Why didn't Zewald ask this question? Well, so you got, here's Joseph back. Morgenthau, the Jew Morgenthau is starving the German people to death. This is the Ratzinger family sitting around the table. What would Uncle Georg have to say about this? Well, he wrote a book called Jewish Business Practices, Jewish Evangelism. Do you mean to tell me that the Ratzinger family didn't talk this way? Well, go fast forward to theological highlights. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about basically hijacking the Vatican Council. And he did mm -hmm. it. He succeeded Be, he, because, okay, he shows up in Bonn, 1959. Frings hears about him. Bonn is close to uh, Cologne. 
Frings hears about him. He invites him to be the Peritos down in uh, Rome. And then Ratzinger really takes it seriously because he starts writing the speeches that are basically going to destroy the Vatican Council as it was intended to be. And by that, I mean Ottaviani's preliminary documents. So mm -hmm. when you when you read it, you, you get this code type of stuff of like, well, this is the outmoded way of dealing with the past. Aren't we tired of these anti-modernist condemnations? Don't we need a new way forward? Well, this is this is Germany speaking. Yeah, and that's that is another way of describing synodality. Absolutely, a new, new, new way forward. Absolutely, I think you're absolutely right. I think yeah. that's exactly where synodality came from. And it was a Frankenstein monster that Ratzinger created. And now it's going to devour not only him, but the church. And now, whereas St. Paul repeatedly says faith comes by hearing, synodality says faith comes by listening. Right. Right. So now we, now this monster, uh, now who was is, who is the man? I think uh, Walter Kaspar is the classic instance of what we're talking about here because yeah. he took the idea of synodality and he ran with it. Well, we've already had a rehearsal for this, haven't we? What was the synod mm -hmm. on the family? Let me, so here we are, here is the, we're gonna talk about the family. What does the, what do the people of God really want? Well, it turns out that they want what Walter Kasper wants and the German bishops want, which is basically, let's let the divorced and remarried uh, receive communion. Now, why is that a German thing? Well, because the Germans, church gets money from the state called the Kirchensteuer. And that depends on how many bodies you have in the pews. So if people are not coming to church because they can't go to communion, that's a serious dent in your uh, financial, your, your financial well-being. And correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but that uh, if a German Catholic does not pay that, he's excommunicated. Uh, and, uh, as you know I, that's I, true? No, no, no. It's not something you pay. Okay, what you do, what the German Catholic does is he goes to the local whatever and says, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm leaving the Catholic Church. Okay, and that's an official statement that he makes. It's registered there at the local office, goes up to the top, and they cut, okay, one less Catholic, one less Catholic. So if you have an enormous numbers of Catholics leaving, it's a big drop in the money. You, you, they get that, mm -hmm. the church gets that money directly from the state. So all Germans pay taxes. Uh, but the state is the one that determines what the Kirchensteuer is going to be based on the percentage of Catholics uh, gotcha. there. Yeah. So, yeah. So it becomes uh, almost a, a, uh, a bank with holy water thrown on it. Right. Right. And the Germans are very powerful throughout the world. Uh, I, I, if you go to Africa, you'll notice how powerful the Germans are because through their charities. They're there on the ground in Africa, doing lots of good work. I don't want to deny the fact that they're doing good work. I've been there. I've seen what they're doing. And it looks non-ideological to me, just, just uh, decent work. But that doesn't change the structure here. And basically what we're talking about is the ideological occupation of the German Catholic mind through social engineering. And because of Vatican II, it got imposed on the entire church. That's what I'm saying. What's the role of John Paul II in all this, Dr. Jones? Because he, he elevated Casper um, and, and McCarrick and Ratzinger, kept Ratzinger as the longtime loyal lieutenant as the prefect of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith. Wasn't it in Mainz, Germany, where John Paul II first kind of coins the phrase that the Jews are our elder brothers? Right. Was that, was that proclamation first made? In, in a synagogue in Mainz? Am I, I think I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think it was early on, like 1980, something like that. Yeah, that's I, I think you're right. That's a maxim that kind of, you know, rumbles by like a train car. People yeah. don't think by, about by it. The, by the way, the Jews don't like it anymore. Uh, because once you look at the Bible, the elder brothers are always nasty people. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Just, like... Joseph was the younger brother. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oi, oi. He's talking about Cain and Abel. Oi. I didn't notice that. That's too funny. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, so so you've got a yeah, this is that's a really interesting <laughs> question. Like, what is the relationship, the difference between Voitia, Voitiwa, and Ratzinger? I think it's a difference between a Pole and a German. 
I think that this was a man, uh, Voitiva was a man who was focused like a laser from the moment he became Pope. And there was one thing he was focused on, and that was communism. And everybody knew that communism was bad. And everybody knew that the Poles had suffered. The Poles had credibility. They had suffered under the Nazis. They had suffered under the communists. And now solidarity comes along. And lo and behold, we have a Polish Pope. And there's this huge, <laughs> I was there when it happened, you know, this huge outburst of Catholic solidarity, Catholic pride, mm -hmm. uh, ethnic pride. And also it coincided with uh, Ronald Reagan and the Republican Party. He was also was an anti-commie. It was it was the culmination of the anti-communist crusade. And I thought it was great. Yeah. And, and Thatcher. Thatcher. I didn't like her. But anyway, well, she was uh, part it, of the it, trifecta. She it was. was. You're, there's no there's no denying. And there was this kind of sense. Everything was all the stars were in alignment. And you could be damn it. You could be a, a Catholic. You could be a Republican. You could be what, and it was all in alignment and it, it, everything was focused and everything was great. And on top of that, uh, Vojtivo was a bright guy. I mean, he gave us, he gave a speech in Philadelphia, which was one of the seminal moments of his papacy, because I was here, I uh, grew up in Philadelphia and I was now at St. Mary's College shortly before I got fired. And he gave a speech in which he talked about uh, church and state and the interpretation of Dignitatis Humanae, which was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. And it saved the Vatican Council. It saved it. It saved that document where a lot of people were saying this may be, including the Lefevreites, uh, were saying it's a break in tradition. And he showed brilliantly how, how it was not. So uh, I, this, this is my fantasy. Okay. If, if, if Wojtyla can be a Polish patriot, then why can't Ratzinger be a German patriot? You know, charity mm. begins at home, right? Charity begins at home. So Wojtyla comes in and he rescues the Polish nation, liberates the Polish nation. God bless him. And we all cheered. Ratzinger comes in. What should, this is my fantasy now, what should Ratzinger have done? He should have liberated the German nation. From what? From guilt, from guilt, and from the tentacles of the Amer uh, the American Empire. Yes, and one external and one internal. Right, and so remember the Regensburg speech. Yes, powerful speech. Uh, mm -hmm. Immediately pissed off 1.2 billion Muslims. Immediately, and caused a lot of stir in Munich. This was his homecoming. This was to. Germany, what Wojtyla going to Warsaw in 1979. That was an epic-making moment. That was six months after the Ayatollah Khomeini had taken over the, revol the revolution in Iran, had taken over Iran. And that's the rebellion against the great Satan and American imperialism. And now Wojtyla follows suit. And this is the revolution against Soviet materialism. That was e a huge epic-making Epic making yeah. moment, epic making yeah. moment. So what's let's go. Ratzinger goes to Munich. He's going home. This is the local boy that made good. And the speech he gives should have been about. Oh, no, we can't talk about that. It should have been about guilt. It should have been about German guilt. And it should have said something to the effect of, yeah, if you commit a sin, you incur guilt, okay? And if you go to confession, uh, God will forgive your sins and you will be restored. Now, if someone is, but the other thing is that people can manipulate guilt, okay? And there's one group that has been manipulating German guilt ever since the end of the war, and we have to identify that group, and it's the Jews. And they have created a narrative that has crippled the German people because what we had uh, we, we were a conquered nation. We were defenseless. We had to rebuild from ground zero. And at that moment, they imposed this ruthless storm of social engineering on us that made us feel guilty about things that we should not feel guilty about. Now, let's get to the specifics. And that's what he should have done. Now, he should have then started to talk about the Holocaust and what happened after 
uh, America Conquer, the Morgenthau Plan, all the stuff we just mentioned, plus a lot of other stuff he could have mentioned. At this point, I think he probably would have broken the law in Germany. At that point, he could have been arrested. This would be the best thing that ever happened to the Catholic Church, to force the German government to arrest the German Pope, call their bluff, or maybe he wouldn't be arrested. Maybe they wouldn't mm -hmm. dare, wouldn't dare. But either way, he would have opened up a discussion that could have healed the German soul and done for Germany what Wojtyla did for Poland. I wonder if it's a case of too few people see the um, oppressors as as equal, the Soviet Union to to Poland, and the the enemies of Germany to Germans. No, you're a, obviously. Yeah. Uh, what have we had? We've had a narrative for uh, uh, for my entire lifetime that is demonizing the Germans. I mean, when you uh, you're talking about Hollywood. Hollywood is the propaganda ministry for the American empire. And they have, how many, how many Holocaust films have been made? It's over 400. That's, that's, a, that's a modest, uh, a modest uh, uh, account here. Uh, how, how do you, how do you, how do But the point here is that the whole point of social engineering is to engineer consent and to get these people to internalize the commands of their oppressors. So that, you know, you go, you're an Indian, you go and see a cowboy movie and you cheer when the cowboys come in and they shoot the Indians. Well, that's what the Germans have been doing for years now, for my entire life, more than my entire life. Certainly the enemy as a cultural icon always has a German accent. Uh, if you want a, a, a handle to quickly grab to, to demonize your opponent, you have to call him a Nazi. Right. It's still today. It's still today. COVID. Okay. COVID. How do we talk about COVID? We have to refer to some type of Nazi par uh, paradigm. You know, uh, the vax pass is like the yellow badge that the Jews were. This is dominates. It dominates. Uh, it is. It dominates all moral discourse. If you notice the, the strange irony of Israel accepting a German made product that's killing them. You got Pfizer BioNTech, a, a classic German big pharma company. You've got the Israeli government that's, that thinks that four jabs is not quite enough for you. Their hospitals are filled with sick people who've been vaccinated. Uh, it's, it's not it, well it's, noted, but it's there. It's worse than that. It's worse than that. Because the head of Pfizer is Albert Borla, who's a Jew. Mm -hmm. Can you figure that one out? Are the now you can say that I we I say it all the time that the vaccine is a bioweapon. Uh, I, I think it is. I believe that. Uh, but why would uh, Borla wait, uh, wield this weapon against the Jewish people? I mean, it's, it's not unheard of. There's a Levon incident where they they basically the Mossad blew up a synagogue, killed a lot of Jews to create panic among the Jews so that they would uh, immigrate to to Israel. But there's still an element of uh, puzzlement here. And here we come full circle with the revelation that uh, Monsieur Borla met with Francis twice last year. And you have to ask the question, how much money exchanged hands? Because it explains or partly explains why Francis the Merciful has been the biggest cheerleader for the inclusive capital oligarchs in, uh, in canceling Easter for the first time since Constantine legalized Christianity. Yes. I have to think there's a financial uh, cha back channel there that happened. I'd love to see someone dig it up and expose it. So would I. So would I. But I mean, the fact you're, there is a, a fact here that the church has become the handmaid of the oligarchs. There is no question. Mm -hmm. now, I'm attributing it to the Jesuits uh, because that's the, the role that they have played at America Magazine for, for years now. But uh, there is no question that that is the fact here. Since you wrote uh, Pope Francis in question, um, your, your ebook, Mike, which I enjoyed, let me ask you a question if I can as your guest. Uh, and that is, do you find it unusual? Or how, do you, how do you explain this? That John Paul II, when he was elected in 1978, I think he went back to Poland nine times, the conquering local boy who became the first Polish Pope. Benedict, I think, went back to Germany three or four times during his reign. Francis, 
has been to Chile, uh, uh, Peru, uh, uh, twice in Brazil. I think he's been to Ecuador, never to his own home country after eight years. Why? Because nobody likes him. Every, everybody, I, mean, I, I went to Buenos Aires. I talked to a lot of people when I was down there before I, I wrote that book. And, and obviously, you know, when you do that, you're going in certain circles. Uh, okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, nobody had a good thing to say about Bergoglio. No one. Yeah. George no Neumeyer one. said the same thing. Uh, and so what what happened here? He was basically kicked out of the country by the Jesuits. The Jesuits hated him. So the, the, the worst punishment they could think of inflicting on him was sending him to Germany to write a Ph.D., which they did. He did. They sent him there and he never did it because he's just not he, that's not the type of person he is, you know, and he came back and then he was rehabilitated. Now he was rehabilitated by a certain group of people that we've already mentioned. Uh, at a certain, they they did uh, two Jews did an article on him, basically absolving him of the accusations that he was in cahoots with uh, sending priests to the death squads. Two priests uh, or priests were making that claim during the dirty war in mm -hmm. Argentina, and they effectively absolved him of that, and that cleared the way for him. It kind of sanitized him and cleared the way for uh, his candidacy to run for the uh, pope which uh, he became the, the candidate of the, uh, the Sangalan group and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But he also acquired a kind of spiritual guide at this point, and that was Rabbi Skorkna. Uh, so why am I saying this? I talked to a Jesuit when I was there. As a matter of fact, I talked to the only Jesuit who would talk to Bergoglio at that time. He told me that. He said everybody hated him. Uh, just because of his manner, the way his administrative manner and ju judging from the what the evidence we have is the papacy, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm be, it start, sort of makes sense. So at this point, this, this is shocking. OK, I know it's shocking, but I said, well, so what did you talk about? And he told me, uh, well, we talked about the Jews. And I said, well, what did Bergoglio say? He said, los judíos son mierda. I remember the exact words of the conversation. Jews are shit. Well, how do you square that with being um, basically uh, under the thumb of Rabbi Skorkna and uh, being the most avid pursuer of uh, Jewish interest? I, I, I think he changed his mind. I think that this is a man, if you want to understand him, you have to understand Juan Peron who was mm -hmm. an important figure when he was a young man. And if you understand Juan Perón, you realize that principle has nothing to do with the exercise of power. He would advocate one thing, the opposite, go back and forth. You can't, you know, you just can't figure that out. I think that's, yep. I think this is a man who feels that principle is basically anti-pastoral. Yeah, I, I think this is the heart of uh, Henry Sears' book, The Dictator Pope. The dictator is a reference to to Perón, and Peronism really doesn't have anything to do with liberal versus conservative, no, no. trad versus progressive. No, it's more Machiavellian. It's just make your underlings afraid of you so you can manage them. Uh, bring into your cohort uh, closeted homosexuals because you know they're vulnerable to blackmail, and they're they're just will be much more supine and docile for you. And and uh, uh, when among the uh, Leftist Franciscans sound like one of them. When in front of uh, Latin mass groups, sound like one of them. So everyone feels that this guy understands me. He's he's my leader. Yeah. Now, if you remember the, when he came to uh, the United States, he went out of his way to meet with uh, uh, that late. I think it was a Kim Kim, Kim Davis from, Kim Davis right. from Kentucky. Mm -hmm. I know the people who arranged the meeting. Okay, mm -hmm. and she was a courageous lady because she stood up to gay marriage. Yep. She wouldn't issue a certificate saying homosexuals get married, got in trouble, made, became a national figure for a short period of time. He met with her, you know, nice meeting. Uh, you're courageous. Well, that blew up in his face. And you know who the fall guy was for that? Well, there was a couple of fall guys, maybe. I'm thinking uh, one of them was Father Thomas Rosica, who was his now disgraced plagiarist uh, America, um, American Canadian. English language uh, spokesperson. By, he he by, helped cover it up. Who who are you thinking? No, I, by fall guy, I mean, who took the blame? Who took the heat? 
I think it was uh, Archbishop Vigano. He was the one who mm-hmm. arranged it. Right. And at that point, uh, Bergoglio turned on Vigano. And, you know, as we say, the rest is history. Uh, then the McCarrick thing blew up and then Vigano uh, became kind of like the uh, the man who said there was a homosexual mafia in the Catholic Church. Well, if we, that would make sense from Vigano's point of view, because he's introducing the Pope to Kim Davis as a way of standing up to the homosexual mafia that's running the United States of America or was in control of the Supreme yeah. Court at that point. Yeah, I think it was Rosico leading the uh, the charge to shame her. And to make it seem right. like it was it was almost like a high five across a room of strangers that really didn't mean anything. Pope didn't remember it. And there were no photos taken. Normally, if Jim Martin SJ is in front of the Pope, there's an army of photographers. And it's it's a flashbulb heaven for for Father Martin, who can right. then exploit the meeting. Right. Right. So we're back at uh, 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 back at square one. Uh, well, we're not. We're not, because the whole point of this is to understand what's going on. And I'm trying to say that uh, you really, we really have to delve into what happened to the church after World War II, because, and Ratzinger is the key figure in this, because through Ratzinger, uh, basically social engineering got imposed on the Catholic church. And I'm saying that's true to this day. And the vehicle was the Second Vatican Council. So just to get, just to bring this, back together again, 1964 is the moment of uh, Ratzinger's triumph. They basically thrown out the, uh, thrown out the, uh, um, the preliminary documents. They've taken over the council. Uh, there's all this, you know, we have a new way forward. Well, if mm-hmm. that's great, uh, but the problem is the Frings is in Rome. And Frings should be up in Germany because 1964 is the year that uh, this international cabal broke uh, the obscenity laws in Germany at this time. The the, the the film was called The Silence. It was uh, directed by Ingmar Bergman, who was the guy, the artsy film guy of the 1950s done in collaboration with a Swede by the name of Harry Schein. Wait a minute, Harry Schein? That doesn't sound Swedish. Well, he was uh, an Austrian who went to Sweden to escape uh, Hitler, and he had contacts with Hollywood, and Hollywood was coordinating this. So he had this Jewish connection with Hollywood. At the same time that, that uh, the silence comes out, same time we have the pawnbroker coming out in America. They broke the code. So wait a minute. Right. You, you sh- what am I? Who am I? Who am I? But I'm saying that the real battle was in Germany. And basically, Frings, who was the most courageous fire eating bishop of that era, was hors de combat. He was missing in action because he was down at the council being the mouthpiece for Joseph Ratzinger, who didn't like this negative approach. And basically, at that at, the, at this point, uh, the uh, the. German church abandoned the Volksfahrtbund, which was their legion of decency. They ran mm-hmm. up the white flag, exactly what the legion of decency did in America. And you allowed this group of people to take over your country. Was the German uh, equivalent of the legion of decency a Catholic-led? Is that a lay movement in Germany? Yes. They, the guy the guy who headed it was a guy named Kalmus, who had been there for a long time. So it was a lay, uh, a lay be a lay a lay-led organization that had the support of Cardinal Frings and therefore of the entire German hierarchy. So, yeah, yeah, it was it was like it was just like the Legion of Decency. Well, the Legion of Decency was run by a, a priest. Monsignor Little ran the thing at the time of the pawnbroker. But the, the one of the movers and shakers was Joe Breen, who was actually in Hollywood. So, it, yeah, yeah. It's, it was very similar to the Legion of Decency. I know the Father Daniel Lord S.J., um, a Jesuit of the old school, wrote most of the protocols with a guy called Martin Quigley back in the early 30s right. that governed when it was called the Hayes Production Code. That's interesting. Um, if you see the famous, this is a quick sidebar, but your viewers might be interested to see, you can go on Google Image and see LBJ solemnly, with an asterisk, with his hand raised, his hand, his other hand is on what looks like a Bible. It's, it was actually John F. Kennedy's Latin breviary, which they got from uh, from him because he took it from uh, Washington to Dallas after he was murdered, 
and there's Jackie O looking kind of in shock and they're on the airplane. Remember the famous picture of him? Taking right. I remember boxes? that picture. Well, yeah. Uh, over her right shoulder, there's a guy with silver hair kind of uh, bug eyed looking at the scene. That's Jack Valenti. He was a staffer with LBJ, a lapsed Catholic, and he's the one who disassembled the code and gave us the MPAA ratings in 1965 right. to 66. Right. right. So there's another, the nexus of, of Washington and Hollywood right there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm saying we're living that legacy now to this day. The, 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 the assault, the pornography, the, the, that the fact that pornography has disabled an entire generation of people who grew up with it on their cell phones is all traceable back to this moment. And I'm saying it's traceable back to, 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 to Ratzinger who basically did was embarrassed. I'm saying, I'm saying, if you read that uh, highlights, this is a man who's embarrassed by the old approach of condemnation, embarrassed by the modernist oath of Pius X, embarrassed by the syllabus of errors. And although he mm -hmm. doesn't mention it, if I were Zavold, if I were in Zavold, uh, God uh, it would be great. But I would say, well, what was your position on the Volkswagen point? Mm -hmm. Did you feel that the church made the right decision by abandoning the Volkswagen point? Okay. That's, yeah. I, 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 there's too much fantasy. I can't, I can't, uh, <laughs> I, I can't uh, kind of control my fantasies here because suddenly you see that there were, there were options. There were other things could have happened during this period of time. And the fact that they didn't happen is probably the reason we're in this mess. Do you think there's a possibility that this synod on synodality is one big kind of practical joke by someone? Because it's pretty, if, you, if you'd said it 10 years ago or under, under any previous pontiff that they're gonna have a synod devoted to synodality, you'd think, well, that's a, that's a parody website. I mean, that's, a, that's an onion headline. Because no, it, it, it literally, I, all it is, is a continuing ground softening to, to justify and rationalize dissent. Usually dissent having to do with what they call pelvic issues. And that's what the Germans major in. Dissent they from do. the Catholic and I, sexual that's why. ethic. That's, and that's why. That's why, because their sexual morality was destroyed by American social engineering over this period of time. And it got so they, they couldn't defend the moral order because anytime you defended the moral order, someone would say, well, didn't the Nazis, didn't the Nazis object to this type of thing? And that shut down the discussion, completely shut down the discussion. That's the legacy. It's to this day. Mm -hmm. Whenever you want to discredit your opponent, you say you're a Nazi. That's or an anti-Semite, which is the same thing. That's the way, and the church has been completely marginalized because they're going along with this uh, false agenda. You mentioned communism and, and the laser-like focus John Paul II had on it. I, I wonder if his quick tectonic shifts, his, you know, going back to Poland in 1979, where a million Poles practically bellowed the phrase, you know, we want God, we want God. Right. Right. The footage is very chilling. I mean, it's beautiful to watch. Um, I wonder if that in some way was a uh, his own personal uh, pendulum swinging away from the enthusiasm of, enthusiasms of the 60s and 70s. Because if you look at the documents of the Second Vatican Council, especially the four main ones, you will not find a line condemning communism. There's a footnote in Lumen Gentium, I think another right. one in Gaudium et Spes, and I think this is due to the infiltration that Bella Dodd talked about after she came back to the church. Now I've looked for the chapter and verse and where she said all this stuff. And there's an upcoming biography of her by a, a retired physician named Dr. Mary Nicholas. It's, I think Tan is publishing it. Very important book on uh, where, where she said this. And, and now that Alice von Hildebrand has gone to her reward, um, Mary Nicholas becomes an important historic key to understand uh, that cardinals like Cardinal Ottaviani, who, who is routinely routinely demonized, as uh, I think his nickname is Semper Idem, always right. the same. His motto. Yeah. Yes. yes. Well, thank God for him. Uh, he did his best to hold the line <clears throat> to keep this continuity with sacred tradition. Uh, and yeah. anyone anyone who's who's the object of shame and devil terming names always gets my attention right if anyone's right. banned or shamed i i i my ears prick up right. what right. does he have that that 
right. uh, as an adult, I'm not allowed to, to ponder. I think the Voitier, what we saw then was the return of the repressed and the repressed was ethnicity. There's, mm -hmm. they, it, we would have been a lot better off if we had taken ethnicity seriously at the Second Vatican Council. Uh, Ratzinger plays that card all the time. He, he's always speaking uh, in a denigrating way about the Spanish and the Italians as if they have some type of agenda and Ottaviani is the man behind it all and so on and so forth. Well, wait a minute. You're telling me the Germans don't have an ethnic uh, agenda? They can't be honest about it. That's the characteristic we're talking about here. I think when we're coming to Ratzinger, we're talking about a kind of passive aggressive personality. Much as I like, I like the guy, I like him personally, I like a lot of his writings, but we're talking about a passive aggressive personality that is the result of social engineering. And I think that that's the key to understanding Samorum Pontificorum as well, because it's not about the Latin mass, it's about the Jews. And they were, he was told that by a group of the German theologians months before he issued it, they said, we know what you're doing. And I think they were right. I think they were right. This was his way of bringing back those questions, the discussion of the perfidious Jews, because they were in the Latin documents. He couldn't do it. He couldn't bring himself to do it specifically, explicitly. But I did it. He did it covertly with the Latin mass. And in doing that, I think he weaponized the Latin mass. And the result was uh, the traditionis custodes, which is the other weaponization of it. Uh, doesn't perfidious simply mean faithless? with respect to Christ? Yes, yes. But yes, it does. And, and, uh, and it, they played on that. And uh, there's obviously a derogatory uh, meaning to this as well. Uh, is, is there some analogy between what you're saying about uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger's attitude towards Sp Spaniards and, and Italians and Walter Casper's attitude toward Africans? Remember, he was caught in right. a, uh, <laughs> he was caught in kind of a bit of a lie there with Ed Penton. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, that was too, that was too good. That was precious. Let, let's be honest about it. Let's not try and I mean, yes, it's a universal church, but we all grow up speaking a particular language. And we grow up eating particular kinds of food. And uh, let's be honest about it and say that this, this does exist. And I think it should have existed in an overt form. I've already told you what I think should have happened at Regensburg. And the fact that it didn't, cause damage and the damage is with us still because this is an ethnic agenda. I think that that's what we're seeing here. And what you have with the Jesuits now is an ideological agenda that is masquerading uh, as some type of universal uh, 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 gathering of information, which it is not. We need to expose these, these various things. Have you written anything on the, the strange canonical conundrum, which apparently has been resolved uh, uh, that's that's uh, represented by a Jesuit as Pope, since Jesuits make a vow to obey the Pope. No, I've, I I know what you're talking about. No, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't talked about it. Wrote about. Written about it. Any Jesuit who is uh, Orthodox in Catholic belief is automatically either sent to a loony bin or removed from formation. Is, is that probably true? I'm thinking of the late Father Paul Mankowski. I was just going to bring up Paul yeah. Mankowski. Paul Mankowski grew up in Granger, which is right outside of South Bend, Indiana. The day he was ordained, he brought he arrived at my house with two other Jesuits, mm. uh, uh, also newly ordained. And we talked over the whole story about the, the Jesuits, and we were all going to give it the college try. Uh, Paul Mankowski later uh, was some, received a letter from someone uh, st stayed a faith faithful to the Jesuits till his death, early death. Uh, mm -hmm. But anyway, got a letter. Someone, I'm thinking of joining the Jesuits. What should I do? And Paul said, wrote back and said, "You should not join because this order is incapable of reforming itself. Mm. It's incapable of reforming itself. It has been taken over." he told me it was taken over by a homosexual cabal, uh, and that he was persecuted because he wouldn't go along with it. They knew that he didn't agree and he was persecuted and he died. Now, I, I, he was one of the most brilliant writers I have ever known. He was one, he was the most brilliant satirist that I have ever met. And I, yeah. I was fortunate enough to publish stuff in, uh, uh, culture wars and fidelity, fidelity, actually, uh, when he was writing. And then he, as soon as it appeared, he got banned 
you know. Just think as another thought, I'm full of thought experiments today. Suppose the Jesuits had promoted Paul Mankowski in the way that they are now promoting James Martin. Mm-hmm. It would be a different world. Different yeah, world. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, his, his satire and... Um, he was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, there is nothing the fine, short. The fine, the fine wine, for sure. He's brilliant. Anyway, on that note, de mortuus nil nisi bonum, on that positive yes. note, <laughs> we have to bring this to an end. Patrick, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks uh, so much, uh, Mike. I want to have you. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to get through your your little pamphlet called Barren Metal. I do want to talk about usury and capitalism in light of COVID soon on the Patrick Coffin Show. Good. Plug away. It's only 1,400 pages long. So <laughs> anyway. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate Peace. it. Peace. Peace to you. Thank you. Thank you.